0: Good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett. I'd also like to welcome those of you who are visiting us. Um, we're glad that you're with us this morning. And we're in the, uh, coming towards the end of a series on the book of Exodus. Uh, our text this morning is Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 15. And if you happen to be using one of our few Bibles, you'll find that on page 61 of that Bible. If you've been here all summer, you're going to have that one page number in the Bible memorized. Lots of good things happen on page 61. Uh, and as we've been talking week in and week, week out about the book of Exodus, we've been talking about this from the angle of freedom, that in Exodus we see that God has come to set his people free, he sets them free in the most uh, literal way when he brings his people, his Old Testament people, out of Egypt and out of slavery and into their own land and into freedom. And he sets us free most fully in the person of his son, Jesus, comes and sets us free from our sin. But as we go through Exodus, we see not only that great act of redemption, but how he sets us free even where we are today in the middle of the Ten Commandments. That God's law is also a means by which he frees us. That might feel counterintuitive, but I hope we'll see that again this morning. Let me pray for us and then we'll read our text. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you this morning asking that you would meet us you already have in the service. We thank you for the privilege it is to come and to sing your praise and to pray and to confess and to hear your words of forgiveness spoken over us. And we pray now as we come to your word that you would open it to us and open our hearts to your word that you might do your good work of changing us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Exodus 20, verse 2 and 15. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not steal. The eighth commandment, this is the eighth commandment, it teaches us uh, that we are to love our neighbors by respecting their stuff. And we're to love our neighbors by loving them with our stuff. Okay, that's what the eighth commandment's about loving our neighbor by respecting their stuff and loving them, in fact, with our own stuff. We're going to see, I think, as we look at this text, that embracing this calling of the Eighth Commandment, uh, it involves three things. It involves turning from stealing, it involves living generously, and it involves receiving gratefully. Okay, turning from stealing and living generously and receiving gratefully. First, turning from stealing Uh, As we've said with many of these commandments, the Ten Commandments each involve both a negative and and a positive aspect to them. Okay, so most of the commandments are are phrased in the negative, but they imply and actually call for um, a corresponding positive action. Now, in this case, we're going to look first at the the negative of the command, uh, and that's what's right here on the surface. You look here and it says, do not steal. Okay, oftentimes when you go back to the original languages of uh, the Old and New Testament, Greek and Hebrew, uh, you'll find certain nuance in the words that really helps bring out the fuller meaning. If you were to go back and look at the Hebrew word for this, what we translate do not steal, you'd find that it means do not steal. (laughs) Don't, Don't take stuff that doesn't belong to you. And in the context of Exodus and throughout the Bible, that has to do with property. Don't take someone's literal possessions. You also see in the book of Exodus that it refers, in fact, to kidnapping, that you don't take the life or take the freedom of someone else as well. Eighth Commandment is about not taking the stuff of other people. And I think one of the implications, if you think about this, that uh, one of the implications of the Eighth Commandment is that stuff matters. And it, in fact, it matters to God. I mean, again, you've got ten commandments. Let's make good use of them, right? One of them says, don't take other people's stuff. Stuff matters. You know it matters to you, and it's interesting. This also reminds us that it matters to God as well, that our stuff matters. Because Christianity doesn't teach some sort of dualism in which the spiritual realities are the things that really matter, and the physical world, ha- world is somehow unimportant or maybe even polluting to us because we are embodied people living in a physical world, and physicality and even our possessions matter. They matter to us, and the Eighth Commandment again shows us they matter to God as well. So loving our neighbor, and remember that's how we've been talking about these commandments, Jesus' great summary of the law. How do you boil down the law? Love God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. One way of looking at the Ten Commandments is to see the first four commandments deal directly with that first part of Jesus' summary. Love God. Now, we know those can't be separated from loving others, but he goes on, Commandments 5 through 10, to spell out a picture of what it means to love others. And the Eighth Commandment falls right in the middle of those, that we are called to love love others by respecting and honoring and keeping our hands off their stuff. Now, have you ever had something stolen from you? Uh, some of you have. I was told the story this week by one of the families in our church that they left. Uh, some of the family left. They left their garage open, and their son's bike was stolen from them. And and talking about the implications for their kids of wrestling with people who have come into our home and, and stolen our stuff. You, know, you can imagine what kind of uh, the unsettledness that can bring. Some of you experienced that. I've heard stories of here of embezzlement. There's there's stealing, and some of us have been affected very deeply by that. Uh, I've got two bank robbery uh, stories that I was personally involved in that I want to share. <laughs> one of these I've shared before, but uh, I, a number of years ago I worked on campus at William & Mary with students, and I was on my way to campus, and I stopped at uh, Richmond Road. I, I pulled into the bank to um, cash a check, make a withdrawal, something, but I, I pull into the drive-through line, and I'm in the one right next to the window with the teller in it. And no teller is there, and I'm waiting and I'm waiting, and I'm thinking, this is hardly the customer service that you'd really expect. And finally, this woman shows up at the window, and she starts doing this number. And uh, that's waving frantically, for those of you listening to the tape. Um, (laughs) So she's waving frantically, and I'm thinking, what is going on? Right about that time, I look right in front of me, and there's this tall guy, probably 6'3", 6'4", dressed all in black with this, Tall black hat and a beard, this Amish guy walking down the sidewalk wearing, carrying a pink satchel and with sort of his hand in his jacket, looking really shady. And I'm looking over at her and I'm looking at him and I'm getting really scared. And he goes and he jumps in his car and he tears off. And so I drive away and I call the police. And I said, I think I just saw a bank robbery. And so they asked me the details. Well, they later tracked this guy down on Bypass Road and he was apparently known for dressing up as an Amish guy and knocking over banks. So. <laughs> I go to campus, and I sit down with a student, and I'm kind of like, you're not going to believe this, but I was just in the middle of a bank robbery. Uh, Now, when I think about that story and when I experience, when I look at that, I think, you know, there are a lot of things in this world that I'm tempted to, but dressing up as an Amish man with a pink satchel and stealing a bank from a bank in Williamsburg is just not one of them, okay? Now, that stuff really happens as I... Found uh, in such living color, but i don 't feel personally like that doesn 't seem to me the kind of rut that I might find myself in uh, you know and, and and maybe for most of you that that might not be the kind that you would involve yourself in either i have a friend who refers to this kind of crime as thuggery, which is a word I thought he coined himself, but it 's actually a real word. Uh, and so maybe that's not what you do. Maybe, maybe you wouldn't find yourself uh, robbing a bank here in town. Um, maybe something else. Maybe, maybe some shoplifting. Maybe some other forms of active theft. But, but maybe not the Amish kind. But I have a second, second bank, uh, not, not really robbery story, but another bank story. This was recently, I was, I, again, the line at the bank, different branch of the same bike, bank this time. I learned my lesson. But I, I drive up, and uh, I'm going to deposit my paycheck. So I fill out the little slip and I, you know put in the little subtract for some cash back, you know, hundred bucks, something like that. And so I, I I send it you know up the chute. The person gets it and send it back to me. They say thank you, Mr. Barrett. So I, I opened it up and the the cash envelope seemed seemed awfully thick. Uh, and I, I opened it up and I started counting through it and it was uh, what to me is a lot of money. It was my it was my whole month's Salary. So this was one twelfth of the money I get every year was sitting there in cash. And I thought, oh no, you know she didn't, she misread it, whatever. And then I look at the little slip they give you to show how much they deposited into your account, and they deposited the full amount into my account. So she read the slip right. She, according to them and their computer and everything, they've deposited that much money into my account, and I'm holding that exact same amount of money in cash in my hand. And I start to think, huh. <laughs> I've got I've got a little piece of paper that says you deposit it, and you've got no way to prove that you just handed me lots and lots of cash. Again, one-twelfth of what I get every year was sitting there in my hand. And I start to think, wow, I think I could drive off, and they would never know. You know, maybe you wouldn't. Uh, Again, maybe thuggery like for myself might not be something you'd fall into. But maybe you know those moments too where something happens out of the blue and you find yourself just tempted and what are you going to do? Eighth Commandment is about theft. Where do, we, where do we stumble with this? Maybe in very serious ways. Maybe in what we think are very minor ways. Again, maybe something like shoplifting. Or maybe it's office supplies from your place of work. Maybe it's your tax returns. A little over-reporting of your charitable gifts. Maybe some underreporting of your cash income that there's no paper trail for. Maybe it's some, uh, just a little bit of padding of your expense, uh, uh, your expense account at work. Maybe it's your use of your company time. You're surfing on the Internet when you should be working. Checking out the airfare deals for your next vacation or checking the sports score or reading the news, all unrelated to the work that you've been hired and are in the process of being paid to perform. Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's lots of things. And you think to yourself, but everybody does it. And yes, they do. Thieves all of us, each and every one. When we fall into this to whatever degree, what is it that motivates us? What motivates us to be thieves? Well, one uh, simple on the surface motivation might well be covetousness or greed. We just want more. And uh, we get a whole commandment devoted to that in two weeks. So we'll come back to that. There are other possibilities, maybe desperation. You know, you find yourself uh, without the means to support yourself and your family, Can't, don't have enough to eat, or maybe someone in one of a, a higher tier feeling of desperation. Uh, things are not going so well in the business. My spouse might leave me. I might lose my, might lose my standard of living, and maybe a little embezzlement isn't so bad desperation, maybe it's just a lack of thought, maybe not realizing that you're actually stealing, especially in relationship to things that involve uh, a big and impersonal uh, recipient like a company or the government, or when you're um, in your dorm room uh, downloading illegal songs from the internet, something as impersonal as the World Wide Web, maybe it's just the thrill of the ride. Some of you will be familiar with this story. St. Augustine, one of the most famous of the early church fathers, lived in North Africa, city of Hippo, uh, towards the close of the 4th and beginning of the 5th century. And he wrote a book that's been profoundly uh, important in the history of literature. He wrote a book called His Confessions, where he speaks about his own coming to faith and his own wrestling with sin in a very intimate and personal way. And uh, in the Confessions, he tells a story about his own involvement as a thief when he was uh, in his teenage years. He talks about how he comes from a a well-to-do family. He didn't have need for anything, but there he was caught in the temptation to steal. And here's what he said. I had the desire to commit robbery, and I did so compelled to it by neither hunger nor poverty, but through a contempt for well-doing and a strong impulse to iniquity. For I pilfered something which I already had in sufficient measure and of much better quality. I did not desire to enjoy what I stole, but only the theft and the sin itself. And he goes on and tells the story about how he and a number of his friends were out late one night, and they're bored, and so they decide to steal. And so they go to this uh, farmer's field, and they hop the fence, and they steal from him these pears off his tree crime for which they're never going to caught. They steal the pears. And he goes on to say, we weren't even hungry. In fact, we have pear trees of our own that have better pears than this, but we just wanted to steal. And he goes on to say, in fact, we barely even tasted them. We took them and we threw them to the pigs, but we just wanted to steal. And in this account, he says this uh, insightfully, doing this pleased us all the more because it was Forbidden. He goes on to talk about how this theft for him was not simply a matter of need. It arose from his heart. Such was my heart, O oh God. Such was my heart, which thou did pity even in that bottomless pit of my heart. That This theft springs from his heart. So maybe for some of us, our own experiences and now the world around us, this thrill, this illicit thrill even of taking something that just doesn't belong to us. Theft that's rooted in our heart. Okay, so again, positive and negative implications for all the commandments. And the negative of this is do not steal. Don't don't take stuff. But it doesn't stop just there. There is a positive implication for this. Again, going back to Jesus' grid, love your neighbor and love yourself. Let me ask us this. Have we, have we really loved our neighbor when we have simply refrained from stealing from him? I've loved all y'all this week. I haven't stolen from one of you as best I can tell mentioned this a few weeks ago. Remember the Hippocratic Oath taken by physicians. One of the first things they promise is uh, that they will do no harm. But, of course, you want much more from your physician than simply he's not going to kill you. You want him to bring healing into your life. And it's the same with commandments. Not enough simply that we refrain from what is forbidden, but we are called to actually bring, in a positive sense, love into the lives of our neighbor. So not only are we to refrain from taking other people's stuff... Uh, we are also to be actively involved in putting our own stuff to the service of others. We are, in fact, to love others with our stuff. In other words, the Eighth Commandment commands us not only not to steal, but to live generous lives in service to others. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul speaking to a church of relatively new converts. Uh, and he knows that many of them have come out of all kinds of backgrounds, uh, and including theft. And listen to what he says to them. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. What does he say to all these recovering thieves? He says, stop stealing, negative force of the commandment, and go get a job and support yourself and so that you might have extra to share with other people who are in need. It is not enough simply to stop stealing. You are to put all of your possessions for the good of others because don't steal is only the start of God's intention for us in loving our neighbors. Now as we say it that way, are you seeing how deep again the Ten Commandments run? how deeply they affect our lives. They have a pervasiveness and a depth of God's involvement in our life because all of life is lived Godward. All of life is lived quorum Deo, in the face, before the face of God. And Ten Commandments highlight for us, that includes our sexuality, our worship, our relating to our parents, to authority, lying, hate. That following God and being in relationship with Him runs to the very core of who we are and affects everything about our lives. Because God isn't out to simply build a world filled with nice people who don't do mean things. He's building a kingdom filled with a new humanity. Men and women and children who have been reconciled to God through Jesus and who are now freed to really love their neighbors and to even love their neighbors with their own stuff. So the Eighth Commandment brings up this question. If I'm called not to take from others, if in fact I'm called to use my possessions for the good of others... How am I supposed to fundamentally understand my relationship to my possessions? How should I think about my stuff if it's meant to be put for the good of others? And and here's a good way of summarizing what Scripture teaches. We are stewards rather than owners. We're stewards rather than owners. You know what a steward is? A steward is someone who is put in charge of someone else's things to manage them and use them well, but he's not the ultimate owner of those things. Because Scripture teaches very clearly that God is the only owner in the absolute sense. listen to a few verses here, job one, naked I came from my mother 's womb, and naked shall I return. the Lord gave the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. First Samuel two, the Lord makes poor and makes rich, he brings low, and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust, He lifts the needy up from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on, him, on them he has set the world. Psalm 24, 1, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 50, verse 10, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. In other words, everything belongs to God. He has the rights of the owner over everything in this world, because he is their, its creator. He owns everything. Now, as you, we can see in Scripture, the Bible assumes private property, but never in the sense that we are absolute owners of the things that we have. God is the owner. God is the king. And we are the stewards to whom he entrusts his goods. Now, some of us have, have never really thought about this, and, and most of us forget this on a, on a regular, if not daily basis, that we're stewards and not owners heard a pastor recently in a sermon suggest this for an application for his congregation. He said, do this. Take out your credit card or or your credit cards, and on the back where the name is, write the word Jesus. And every time you go, it might sound a little cheesy to you, but, but every time you go and you pay for something, you think everything this card represents belongs to Jesus. Am I using it well? Am I using it well? we are stewards, not owners. It's, again, it's been a number of weeks. Some of you are just visiting us for the first time, and it's, it's, it's time for a Lord of the Rings analogy. <laughs> uh, in the Lord of the Rings, there uh, the, the, the chief and most important city, the nation of, of the good guys, the, the, the good men and women, is called Gondor. That's the name of the kingdom. And uh, hundreds of years before, the king of Gondor was killed and all his, uh, his, his known uh, heirs were, were lost in antiquity and nobody knows what happened to the kingly line. And so after the king was killed, uh, they uh, established what was called the steward of Gondor who was going to take care of the city and rule the kingdom in the king's stead until one day the heir of the king would return. And this goes on for generations and generations of the father handing it off to his son, the stewards of Gondor. And in the time of the Lord of the Rings, the time of the book, uh, the steward is a man named Denethor, uh, this stern and in many ways heartless man. And upon hearing that Aragorn, the true king, the true heir, has, a, has returned, he says this, Gondor has no king and Gondor needs no king. Because what had happened? This position of steward became steward in name only, and he began to think of himself as king. And how often do we do that ourselves? We have no king. We need no king. And Scripture tells us, in fact, that God is king, and all belongs to him, and we are stewards. So that means that if God is king and we are stewards and he gives us stuff and he calls us in the Eighth Commandment to love others with our stuff, he calls us to live generously because it's his stuff. And that's generously in two directions. We're called to live generously towards God. Okay, it is God. It all belongs to Him. And He calls us to live generously towards Him. And one of the ways He gives us in Scripture to have that regular discipline and reality in our life is Scripture talks about tithing. He says you're to take a portion of what God entrusts to you and give it directly back to the work of His kingdom. Now, all of our stuff is to be put to good ends. But He says one tenth of that in the Old Testament is to be put directly back into the service of the kingdom, this is going to remind you that everything belongs to God. Now, I'm not going to go into the ins and outs of tithing this morning. In the fall, just in a couple of weeks from now, we're going to do a series on worship, on what it means to live lives of worship. And in order to do that, each week we're going to take an element of our, of our uh, liturgy to talk about how this informs us in worship. We're going to talk about the call to worship, and the confession of sin, and singing, and tithes and offerings. So we're going to talk about this in a fuller way. In several weeks, but for now, simply to say that God calls us to live generously towards him. And, of course, he calls us to live generously towards others in several circles of concern. If you look, we're in Scripture, we see that we are to be live generous lives towards our own family, towards our own family connections. New Testament, Paul says if anybody doesn't meet the needs of his own family when he can, then he's worse than an unbeliever. He's neglecting his responsibility. So we're called to live generous lives towards our family. We're called to live generous lives towards our new family, towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, towards the church here in Williamsburg and around the world. You see this in the book of Acts where in the most radical way, the early church in Jerusalem, when someone was in need, those who had more means, private property, their natural step for them was they would go and sell their property so that they would be able to meet the needs of others. That We're called to live generously in service to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are called to live generously in service to our whole world. It's the point of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? Anyone whom God brings across your path. That we are to show this generosity to the entire world around us as we have opportunity. So to sum up, this generosity is a lifestyle of open-handed care for other people. Now, well, let's ask ourselves this question are we are we not only willing to help if we're really pressed but are we eagerly looking for ways to help and to give okay most of us you know okay if they come over and ask me by name specifically to help with this need then i will probably do it but please don't come over here <laughs> um n- number of years ago used to teach uh, for a couple years taught high school english freshmen and sophomores mostly and ask a question in class I'm Seen this with you all times too. Ask a question, in class, and if you don't know the answer, what do you do? You sort of look down at your feed and uh, try not to make eye contact. But there's always that kid or two in the back that's like, "Pick me, pick me!" You know, the one that knows the answer and wants everybody else to know it. The eager beaver. Uh, so you got both extremes. What is it like for us when we think about giving and our call to be generous? Are we one? Are we the ones uh, staring in our shoes? Shifting uncomfortably, hoping nobody looks our way. Are we the, the kid raising our hand saying, let me be a part of that. Let me do that. The Eighth Commandment calls us to be generous people because we uh, have been entrusted with so much from our God. Now why do we have so much trouble with this? Why is it so hard to be generous? What are the barriers to our generosity? Why is it hard to embrace this kind of life of open-handedness with our stuff, even when we mentally uh, come to the realization that it really does belong to God? Well, again, it could be hoarding and greed. We're getting there two weeks. Uh, but often for us, maybe it's not your your greed, but maybe it's your fear. You have trouble being generous because you're afraid. because I'm afraid. The economy is struggling. How can I be generous? I have children and a mortgage. Food costs are soaring. You wouldn't imagine how much uh, an organic gallon of milk costs. How can I be generous? I live on a fixed income, and I'm not sure I've put enough away for my retirement. How can I possibly be generous? I'm only a college student. I'm trying to scrape together enough just to buy books. How can I possibly be generous? Because, you see, we're afraid. We're afraid that God won't provide, that he won't take care of us, afraid of the uncertainties of life. And God certainly does call us to live and act wisely. But he also calls us to live and act generously as we rest in the generous care of our Father for us. Jesus has a lot to say about the Father and his ability to meet our needs. Remember Matthew 6 and Sermon on the Mount. Don't be anxious about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink. Don't worry about the clothes on your back, what you're going to wear. Look at the birds. The Father feeds them, doesn't he? They don't sow and they don't put away stuff in barns. Look at the lilies of the field. Not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Don't you think the father's going to clothe you as well? Don't you know that you're worth more to him than these little birds and the flowers of the field? Therefore, don't be anxious. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do we really believe that coming from the lips of Jesus, that God is really taking care of us, that we can be generous and open-handed because he is taking care of us even today? Well, if we don't, we're never going to be able to step into the fullness of the Eighth Commandment. We might be able to refrain from stealing, but we're never going to be able to live lives that are generous and open-handed. So how are we going to be that? Generous, neighbor-loving kinds of people. Well, point three, we have to be people who are ourselves are receiving gratefully. Not taking, actively caring for others, and thirdly, receiving gratefully. Because the Eighth Commandment, you see, tells us something about God. God doesn't steal. And not only does He not steal, He gives. He generously pours out His blessing and His care on us. We know that he is a fa- when we know that he is a father who is caring for us, and only then will our fears begin to subside. Then and only then are we going to relax our white-knuckled grip on our stuff. Only then are we going to be able to let go. Only then are we going to be able to actually put what God has entrusted to us for the use and the good of those around us. Only now will we, ex-thieves, become newly generous people how do we, how do you know that? how do you know the father's really committed to your care certainly he says that we've already said that God's the absolute owner so that all that we have comes from his hand everything you have is already proof to you that he is a good and gracious god but we see it more clearly even in this the truth is that we um, we most clearly learn to trust the generosity and love of someone else when we see it really cost them something you know, if somebody tells you they love you, somebody tells you they will care for you, and you, you know it when you see that it costs them something to live up to their words, to live up to their promise. We have an expression for this. He put his money where his mouth is, right? In other words, he not only said that he loved me, but he actually put his material goods and others, uh, and other things to use for me, to provide for me. He did what it, did it when it mattered most and when it cost him dearly. And that's exactly what we see in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8, again, Paul's speaking in the context of he's taking up an offering for the poor in Jerusalem uh, who are financially in need. And he's um, he's asking other churches to give for that. And he speaks to them about the act of giving. He says this, as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you also excel in this act of grace also, this giving For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. What does Paul say when he's speaking to people about giving generously? He says, remember what Jesus has done for you. He who was rich, who laid it all aside, who took on poverty himself, that you might become rich. What's he talking about? Jesus, in the splendor and glory of sitting at the right hand of the Father, laying it all aside in order to do what? To humble himself, to take on flesh, to come and live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we deserved. He comes, steps into flesh and blood for us. He lays it all aside, puts away his riches, takes on our poverty, poverty even the poverty of death and separation from God, in order that He might give us what we don't deserve, in order that He might be generous above and beyond what we could possibly imagine, that He would give us not the just consequence for our actions, but exactly what we do not deserve, His forgiveness and His love and His healing, that He might give us the gift of relationship with God, unending, unbreaking, unbreakable in Jesus that's the generosity that he pours out on us. That's the security that we have, that we have a Father who loves us, who will take care of us, who will open our hands, that we might be generous people. Ephesians 1, Paul says it this way, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight. We have a God who, He's a generous God. You see, until we get begin to and continue to and more and more grab hold of His goodness and generosity to us, you will never have the courage to be generous. You will never have the courage to be open-handed. Not in such a way that it actually makes you hurt some. Not in such a way that you realize if God doesn't come through here, I don't know what's going to happen, but He is calling me to be open-handed with others. Because at the end of the day, all this stuff is not my stuff, and it belongs to my Father. And every day, He meets me and gives me exactly what I need. Am I going to continue to trust that? Am I going to continue to step into that? Am I going to walk into a Monday morning tomorrow living a life that is a generous life, trusting, clinging, desperately looking to God who is generous towards us? Because that is our only lifeline. And that's our only hope. At the end of the day, that's all that we have in the bank. That Jesus loves us, and we can be sure of that. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would help us even today in some real situations where we are struggling and tempted, and maybe even actually stealing. Would you bring us to repentance? Would you help us to turn from our sin? Father, too, we pray all the ways we are uh, hiding ourselves from your call to be generous, hiding ourselves in fear. Would you draw us out of our fear? Would you remind us of your goodness to us? Would you begin to release the death grip that we have on our lives as we begin to trust you more and more and joyfully become people who are now free to give because we ourselves rest on a source of inexhaustible wealth and goodness brought to us in Jesus. You've promised to hold us in your hand that nothing can separate us from you, not even poverty, not even starvation, not even death, that we are secure in you. Give us the courage to live in that and the faith to hold on as we see you who, more importantly, are holding on to us And your grip never loosens. We are secure. Remind us again. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.